Aren't you glad God's got us covered? In the light of the world in which we live, with all that's going on and all that is around us, this is no time for the church to be a Christian subculture. 46,000 Southern Baptist churches, 46,000, largest evangelical denomination in America. But 41,600 of those 46,000 are plateaued or declining. That means they're dying. 100 churches in America close their doors every week. It's not that America is dying. Our population has tripled in the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, we, we have more people than we've ever had and have more people and will have more people. It's not that America is dying, it's that the church is dying because the church in America has become a religious social club and a religious country club and a religious subculture that has lost the fact that the steeple is to say to the world, the cross is for you. We've forgotten that the last thing Jesus said to the church was the Great Commission. Well, no, it wasn't the last thing he said to the church. The last thing he said to the church was repent. Repent of what? Not being the church. Not being the church that we are supposed to be. And I would submit to you that if we are not careful, as good as we have it and as good as it is, we will become another church that is a Christian subculture of people who like the programs and like the ministries and like the facilities and we like one another and we'll let a lost world die and go to hell and we won't even think about it. Why is it that the persecuted church is growing? The church in third world countries is growing and the American church with all that we have and all the resources we have is struggling and dying. I'll tell you why it is. We've forgotten what it was like to be lost. We've forgotten what it was like to be lost. We've forgotten how good grace is. Or if we think it's good and if we remember what it's like to be lost, we just want to celebrate it with our friends who have also been saved and forgotten that this world is full and this community is full of people that do not know Christ. 88% of the people in the three counties around us are lost and unchurched. Here's the problem, the bottom line. We've gone into the closet and the world has come out of the closet. And the reason the world has come out of the closet is because we've gone into the closet. We are afraid to confront culture. We are afraid to say the truth that sets people free. And so while everything and everybody is coming out of the closet in this world, the church is in a holy huddle hoping that Jesus will come back so we don't have to deal with real life. Here's the problem. We've gone into the closet and the world has come out of the closet. We, what we have in the American church today is far too often we share God and country values but not biblical truth. 
We talk about how good it is to be in a land of the free, and we are free. In a land where we are free to worship, and we are free to worship. In a land where we are free to assemble and to speak. But we don't exercise that freedom when we are silent around people that do not know Christ and don't say to them there's something different than this world has to offer, and we know what it is. You see, when I grew up, Everybody went to church because you were supposed to go to church. I mean, you know, you joined a certain church because that helped your business. It helped your social contacts if you were part of the church. That didn't mean you were saved. You just joined a church because you were part of it. But here's what happened in a church where everybody went to church, which was my home church's thinking. They missed a disenfranchised, drugged out, spaced out, flipped out, generation that had no place for a church where everybody just sat there with their hands folded and sang victory in Jesus and on Jordan's stormy banks we stand and cast a wishful eye. And that disenfranchised generation had one question. What's your Jesus got that I need? And can I tell you something? There's nothing about religion that a lost world needs. Nothing about it. If you want to go to the most religious place in the world, go to the Middle East. That's the most religious place in the world. There's nothing in that that you need. What you and I need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if we're in a relationship with Christ and living in the power of that relationship, there will be a revolution, not a rut. We will see the need for what God has called us to do and called us to be. You see, the church is at its best when it's salt and light. Now, what does salt and light do? Salt and light, they illuminate and they preserve, but they also irritate. If somebody shines a light in your face on a dark night, it'll irritate your eyes. It'll also irritate if you get salt in a wound. But that is what the church is supposed to be. And too often, American Christianity has become convenient and almost cultic in that you can't be a part of our group because you don't look and act and think like us. There's nothing about Jesus that fits that paradigm. You see, Jesus didn't die for cultural Christianity. He died to turn the culture upside down. He died to change the culture. And, and what, what if those early disciples, after they had gotten saved in the resurrection and the ascension, and Jesus said, go into the upper room and pray, and they just said, you know, if we don't go out, nobody will know we're here, and nobody will know we're Christians, and maybe they won't persecute us. What if they said, you know what, we could go to Galilee one weekend and have a retreat, go into the water at the Sea of Galilee. You know, Peter could share a story about when he walked on water, but if we do it quietly then nobody will know we're there and we can come back here to the safety of our enclosed upper room. If they had done that, the gospel would have died in the first generation. So let's go back to the empty tomb, Mark chapter 16. It is interesting to me that the, that the, the tough disciples, the zealot that wanted to take over the government, the revolutionary, the tax collector that wanted to rip people off, Simon Peter, who was a man's man. It's interesting to me that none of those guys had the guts to go to the cross with Jesus. They ran. They hid. They, they didn't want to do 
what it was required. And here were John and a few women. So much for the weaker sex. John and a few women who saw the most brutal, brutal act of capital punishment ever thought up by man, and they stood right at the foot of the cross and watched it happen because they loved Jesus. And so they came back. Jesus has said he would rise again, and so they came back, Mark 16. They, they want to uh, anoint the body of Jesus. I, I, think if, I think if Mary and those women had maybe written a song, they would have written a song that would have said something like, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul rejoice. Take joy, my king, in what you see. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. I, I think they would have been singing songs of worship to the Lord. But look what happens, verse 4. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, don't be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. So there's two things that they're doing here. They're going to anoint the body. That shows their love, their respect for Jesus. And, and, and it's like bringing flowers to a grave. It's a remembrance time. But they've got two problems. They've got soldiers who have pledged their lives to guard this tomb, and they've got a stone that they are not physically able to roll away. But they left their comfort in a climate when it would have been very easy for them to be arrested and beaten, just like Jesus was arrested and beaten. It would have been very easy for them to have been put on public display as people who had violated the law and broken the law, these Christ followers. They were just looking for an opportunity to show their love for Jesus, no matter what it cost them. And they were not concerned about the consequences. That's what happened at the tomb. But now let's move forward from the tomb. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem today. It's at Gordon's Calvary and then there's the garden tomb. There's an empty tomb there today. There's nobody in it. On the door that they close at night when they close it so people can't, won't go in and deface it or anything says, he is not here, for he is risen. This garden tomb is 50 yards from Calvary, from the place of the skull. You walk and you could carry a body easily before the sun had set to this tomb and placed it in there and buried him and sealed the tomb. But if he's risen, if that's true, and it is, what now? What's next? Well, then his story becomes my story. Because I was dead in trespasses and sin, and Jesus made me alive. 
There was nothing I could do to get out of the grave clothes of sin that I wore, but Jesus came and took that grave clothes off of me and made me alive in Christ. So his story is my story, and it is your story, and we need to be a witness of Jesus in this world. Now think about it. If Jesus had not risen, he would have been long forgotten. There, there would be no Christianity. There would be no Christian hospitals. There would be no Christian orphanages. There would be no Christian songs. There would be no Christian books. There would be no completed Bible with the New Testament. All that you know and treasure would be non-existent. It, it wouldn't be here at all. But the greatest evidence of the resurrection is not Christian songs and orphanages. The greatest evidence of the resurrection is the existence of the church. Listen, the church has survived some lousy preaching. And it has survived some lousy singing. And it's survived some lousy members and some lousy buildings. But what makes the church the church is not the buildings and the ministries. What makes the church the church is that Jesus died for it. And he's coming back for the church. And he gave his life for the church. And he loves the church. And so what that means is, is you cannot say in any way that you can love Jesus and not love his church. Because that's what he's coming back for. So what does this mean? Let me just give you a couple of thoughts here. First of all, Jesus is not just a historical figure. He is the central figure of history. He's not just a historical figure. Every religious leader that has ever lived is a historical figure. Jesus is the central figure of history. More books, more songs have been written about him than any person in history. And every other religious leader combined pales in comparison to what's been said about Jesus. It makes him the central figure of history. That's why before people started being politically correct and didn't want to acknowledge Jesus, you had a calendar, B.C., before Christ, A.D., in the year of our Lord. Now nobody wants to say A.D., in the year of our Lord, but it is in the year of our Lord. We're in 2017, in the year of our Lord. Why? Because history is defined by the coming of Jesus Christ. And just because some knucklehead in America decided a few years ago that that was not politically correct, he does not change 2,017 years of history of the world saying that's the mark that changed the world. When people made the calendar, that's the mark that changed the world, was the coming of Jesus Christ. He's the central figure of history. Secondly, Jesus is not a fading memory but a living reality. He's not a fading memory. Oh, you know, as you go on, you just kind of move on from Jesus and go on to something else. He's a living reality. He is alive and well on planet Earth, in his church and through our lives. Thirdly, the Jesus generation witnesses of a personal encounter with Jesus. What that means is simply this. It's not about knowing about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. You can know about him and not know him. There are a lot of people that can tell you things about Jesus, but they don't know him. 
You see, the Jesus generation witnesses of a personal encounter with Jesus. I have had a personal encounter with a man I never met who died on a cross for me, but I was there because my sin was there. And his blood was there, and his blood paid the price for my sin. And so I've had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ that's changed my life. In Christianity, faith is a verb. Faith is a verb. There's no verb for faith in the English language, which is sad. You'd think as smart as we think we are, we could figure that out. But in Christianity, faith is a verb. It acts. That's why James says, you know, faith without works is what? It's dead. It's deader than dead. It means it's not real. Faith is an, is an active word. It we, we doesn't stand still. It's on the move. Action is required. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Faith works. It loves. It gives. It serves. It goes a second mile. It forgives. It does all the things that Jesus taught us in the gospel. It is a doing of life because of who we are in Christ. Number five, Jesus doesn't quit on us. We can't quit on him. Jesus doesn't quit on us. You know, I, I, I run into people, you know, I used to go to church, but I just don't go to church anymore. Well, Jesus didn't quit on you. Well, church is not perfect. No, it's not. And if you join it, it won't be either. This is an imperfect church. You, you, you'll have somebody say, well, I, you know, I don't want to go to church. It's full of hypocrites. Well, one more won't hurt us. Hey, all of us at some point are hypocritical. But, but you see, when, when we are living with Jesus, he doesn't quit on us. Peter had blown it. I mean, this, this is what a legalist would do to Simon Peter. Hey, you know what? You cut an ear off. That's bad enough. You should have seen what the squawk box said about that. And then you denied him three times. Shame, 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 Peter. Shame on you. Shame on you. Don't you ever show your face around here again because you are a sorry follower of Jesus Christ. Go tell the disciples and Peter. And then you go to John 21. You don't go there now, but you go to John 21 and Jesus meets the disciples and he builds a fire. And at that fire, he's cooking breakfast and Jesus has a little meeting with the disciples, but he mainly has it with Simon Peter. By the way, it's a charcoal fire. It's the same kind of fire that Peter was warming himself by when he denied Jesus. And Jesus recreated the smell and the sense of the moment of denial and said, Peter, come over here. I want to talk to you. And he did not say to Simon Peter, you are a jerk. He said, do you love me? He didn't ask him how sorry he was. He didn't ask him if he was going to apologize to everybody that heard it. He just asked one question. Peter, do you love me? If you love me, feed my sheep. Jesus doesn't quit on us. We shouldn't quit on him. You see, failure doesn't have to be fatal or final. Every one of us fail at some point. And the devil comes in as the accuser of the brethren and he beats us up 
about our failure, and we forget the grace of God that saved us from our failure in the first place. Failure does not have to be fatal. It doesn't have to be final. Only Jesus could take somebody like Simon Peter at the lowest moment of his life and say, you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Now let's move from the tomb. Peter might have written that song. Andre did a great job of writing that song, but let's move forward from the tomb. We are not an army that is to be AWOL or in our barracks. We're in the middle of a war for the souls and the lives of families and individuals. And that means that what we do matters. So let me give you some thoughts here on the church. The church is to be a living witness of resurrection power. How can a dead church be a living witness of resurrection power? See, a dead church is a it's, it doesn't even make sense that a church would be dead. And yet there are churches closing down, as I said earlier, a hundred a week. They're dead. How can you be a dead church and have resurrection power? They forgot who they were. They forgot why they were put there. They forgot what they were supposed to be in that community besides just taking up land. Secondly, the church is to preach the gospel without apology. The church is to preach the gospel without apology. We are to share the gospel, preach the gospel. I, I am to be crystal clear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I preach the gospel, it doesn't need to be, well, it could be, it might be. No, it is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father but through Jesus. Thirdly, it is the duty of every Christian to share the good news, not just the extroverts, not just the people with the gift of evangelism. It's the duty of every Christian to share the good news. Listen, I, I know people that will never open their mouth about the gospel, but they have a baby, and every picture of that baby doing everything that babies do and some things we don't want to see on Facebook show up. Or a grandbaby? Holy cow. I mean, I, you know, I just don't feel comfortable sharing my faith. Have you seen my grandchildren? And then they start talking to you, and 45 minutes later you're saying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> I've met their grandchildren, and they're not that cute, and they're not that sweet. I don't know who that person thinks they are. <laughs> or your kids win a trophy? Man, I mean, they, whoa, we got to talk about this. Woo, got to post it. Look at this picture of my kid in their uniform. Got to do all that kind of stuff. Hey, let, hey, let's go out and share with somebody about Jesus. Well, you know, I'm just not real comfortable sharing my faith. You ought to question your faith. We are to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to share it. Number, the, whatever, four. The church is in the people business. The church is in the people business. It's not in the program business. It's not in the method business. It's in the people business. Jesus saw the crowd and he was moved with compassion. Here's when you know you're in the people business. When you quit looking at a crowd and you start seeing people in the crowd. That's what Jesus did. When you quit looking at just, oh, here's my classroom or here's my office or here's where I work or here's where I go to school or here's my neighborhood. And all of a sudden, it's not just houses, it's the people that live in those houses. It's what's going on in those houses. We're in the people business, plain and simple.
Next, the church is to be a powerhouse. Power comes through prayer and through the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is power lived out in the daily grind of life. Not just singing about it at church, but living it out in the daily grind of life. Finding the victory that is ours in the abiding life with Christ. Church is to be a powerhouse. It ought to be, it ought to be electric. And I'm not talking about standing in the back and sticking your finger in a socket. I'm talking about it ought to be electric. That there's, what is God going to do when we gather today? Who is going to be saved? What lives are going to be changed? There ought to be an electricity and an anticipation. Why? Because we have prayed and because God's Spirit is in us and God moves where He is wanted and where He is welcome. And so, Lord, the lights are on and we are ready. We want you to show up. Next, the church operates by his power in this world, not just in the church. You see, the Holy Spirit doesn't drain out of you when you walk out and get in your car. Now, some of your kids might say otherwise. Or your wife or your husband might say otherwise. But the Holy Spirit doesn't leave you and you pick him back up when you get to church on Sunday. The power is in this world. That's where we live it out. That's where the gospel is shared in this world. If we're just sharing with one another, we might be encouraging one another, but nobody's life is being changed. The church is you and me in this world as the hands and feet of Jesus. You and me in this world as the hands and feet of Jesus. That means little things. Our kindness, our serving of other people, our giving of ourselves, our being responsive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit when he says to do something and and we do it. When we act in this world as the hands and feet of Jesus, when we show this world, if Jesus was here, this is what he would be doing. We don't do that to win and earn salvation. We do that because we have been saved. We do that because the Christ life is in us and I need less of Michael Catt and more of Jesus in my life so that the world sees less of Michael Catt and more of Jesus in my life. I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to read to you. It's very lengthy, but uh, I think it has great relevance to where we are today. This is from Max Lucado's book, Outlive Your Life. You want your life to matter? You want to live in such a way that the world will be glad you did? But how can God use us? I have 120 answers to that question. 120 residents of ancient Israel. They were charter members of the Jerusalem church. Fishermen, some. Revenue reps, others. A former streetwalker. A converted revolutionary or two. They had no clout with Caesar. No friends at the temple headquarters. Truth be told, they had nothing more than this, fire in their belly to change the world. The book of Acts cracks with the sounds of God's ever-expanding work. Press your ears to the pages and hear God press into the corners and crevices of this world. Hear sermons echo off the temple walls, baptismal waters splashing, just save souls laughing. Hear the spoon scrape the mouth as yet another hungry mouth is fed. Listen to the doors opening and walls collapsing. Doors to Antioch, Ethiopia, Corinth, and Rome. Doors into palaces, 
prisons and Roman courts and walls, the ancient prejudice between Jew and Samaritan down, the thick and spiked division between Jew and Gentile crash, the partitions that quarantine male from female, landowner from pauper, master from slave, black African from Mediterranean Jew, God demolishes them all and Acts announces God is afoot. Is he still? Would God do with us what he did with his first followers? Heaven knows we hope so. These are devastating times. 1.75 billion people are poor. One billion hungry and starving. Millions are trafficked in slavery. Pandemic diseases are gouging nations. Each year, nearly 2 million children are exploited in the global commercial sex trade. And in the last five minutes, almost 90 children have died of preventable diseases. More than half of all Africans do not have access to modern health facilities. As a result, 10 million die each year from diarrhea, acute respiratory illness, malaria, and measles. Many of these deaths could be prevented with one shot. 10 million, many of these could be prevented with one shot. Yet, in the midst of the wreckage, here we stand, the modern version of the Jerusalem church, you and me, in our one-of-a-kind lifetime and once-in-history opportunity. Ours is the wealthiest generation of Christians ever. We are bright, educated, and experienced. We can travel around the world in 24 hours and send a message in a millisecond. We have ample resources. We have enough food to feed the hungry. We have enough bedrooms to house the orphans. This much is clear. The storehouse is stocked. The problem is not in the supply the problem is in distribution. God give this generation, our generation, everything we need to alter the course of human suffering. But are we using it? Let's pray together. I want to ask you today, what do you need to do? You need to trust Christ today as your personal Lord and Savior. Jesus came and died and gave his life so that you could have life and have it abundantly. So he could take away your sin and your shame and your guilt. Do you need to give your life to Christ today? In a moment, we're going to stand. And when we do, there are going to be men here at the end of these aisles and at the bottom of the mezzanines. There are going to be men here that you can come and say, I just need to give my heart to Jesus today. Maybe you need to be baptized. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's an act of obedience. You need to do what Caleb did this morning. You need to walk through baptismal waters and make a confession to this congregation and to others as a witness of Jesus Christ. He has changed my life. Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to become a part of this church. You need to find out what it means to be a member of this church. You need to talk to one of these men 
about that. Maybe you need to step up your serving and your giving. Maybe if you're honest and you just drew that circle around you, in your heart of hearts, you would be fine if Christianity was a religious social club and a subculture because it doesn't demand anything of you. But Jesus demands our life and our all. He wants it all. He wants all of us because he gave all of himself.